chapter 1. Hear now the reading of God's word. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel you are all partakers of grace with me. For God is my witness, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Take just one more moment to pray. Holy Spirit, come to us now, we ask, and move within us. Apply these words to our lives and make us a different people by this time, considering your very word. We pray in your name. Amen. As you read various authors, thoughts begin to occur to you, questioning who the author is. And publishers know this, which is why on book flaps or at the back of a book, there's often a a brief summary of the author and who he or she is. And it's fascinating to consider that when it comes to the book of Philippians, a letter of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we are given the book flap information, so to speak, about the author, the Apostle Paul. And it, we do well to consider that as it is itself in God's word. If you want to consider Paul's past, you can look at a summary of it in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 28, where Paul speaks about his past, saying, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Sort of a book flap summary of Paul's past. And then in Philippians... Chapter 1, the book we are now studying, 
On four different occasions in the very first chapter, Paul refers to his present situation by saying in verse 7, my imprisonment, which he says again in verse 13, so that in my imprisonment, again, he says in verse 14, that in the Lord, because of my imprisonment, and then again in verse 17, that rather than uh, being distressed, he finds hope even in his imprisonment, his past beaten in danger from all different sorts of people, shipwrecked, even out in the dangers of the deep sea. His present is that he is in prison, in all likelihood, in bonds, that is, bound to some sort of a a Roman soldier. Um, And then his future is something he reflects on in verses 20 through 25 of chapter 1, that He will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now be always exalted in his body, whether by life or death. And it's from there that he goes on to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, and reflects on how he actually looks forward to dying, because that means that he'll go home to be with the Lord, but he wants to stay on in this life in the flesh because he's convinced that he'll be able to work with the Philippian church and continue his labors as an apostle. That's the book flap information, right? The past, the present, the future of the author of the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul. And if you're anything like me, you look at that past, present, and future and think something like this. Well, when it comes to my life, my sufferings don't even compare. I haven't been shipwrecked. I don't know what it's to be out at sea, adrift in danger for my life. I don't know what it's like to go days without food. I don't know what it's like to be imprisoned for my faith. I don't know what it's like to be looking forward to a day on which I'm martyred for that faith. And in a sense, we discount our own experience in light of the Apostle Paul's. And what's interesting about that is that in so doing, we're disobeying the Holy Spirit and disobeying the Apostle Paul's command and instructions because in verse 17 of chapter 3 of Philippians, he says, Brethren, join in following my example. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, he says, The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's way of saying, Don't look at my sufferings and my ability to cultivate joy and rejoice even from prison and write it off as something that is so far beyond you because you don't suffer the same way the Apostle Paul suffers. So what I'd encourage you to do is to realize that with the Apostle Paul and so frequently in Scripture, there's something of an argument from the greater to the lesser. This way you can maintain humility and not walk around and think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm akin to the Apostle Paul. I suffer the way the Apostle Paul suffered. You don't have to do that, but instead you can say, 
if amongst such great suffering, if within these circumstances, grueling circumstances that occurred to the Apostle Paul, even writing from prison looking forward to his own martyrdom, Paul had joy. Then I can too. And the way for that, to that, is outlined for me in Scripture and elaborated on by the Apostle Paul, saying, look to me as an example. And you'll find the peace of God. So all of the book of Philippians, therefore, becomes application. Every time Paul says anything about himself, he calls your attention to it and says, take heed, follow my example, relate to me, don't write it off. And in verses 3 through 6, we have three different ways in which Paul, amidst all of these circumstances, grueling circumstances, cultivates joy and comes to the joy that you see in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy. And that joy is, of course, mentioned over and over throughout the rest of the book of Philippians, making it an epistle of joy. But in verses 3 through 4, Paul's way to this joy is prayer. And then in verse 5, it's by reflecting on participation. And then in verse 6, through reflecting on God's promise. So prayer in verses 3 through 4, participation in verse 5, and promise in verse 6 are the three avenues through which Paul builds this joy in himself that is not happiness, that is not due to happenstance and occurrences and circumstances, but is a joy that can be cultivated and built by those who would follow the Apostle Paul's uh, example, even if you are in the worst of circumstances. A joy that mounts up even from prison in the Apostle Paul. Look first at verses 3 through 4. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. And just hear how he's packing into those two verses that word all over and over. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Just these comprehensive, all-encompassing, massive prayers. And I think what you should start to see from verses like that is how consistently prayer is a part of Paul's life. It's the same Paul who would command elsewhere to pray without ceasing, And I think that from that verse, rather than thinking about sort of being on your knees 24 hours a day, which certainly wasn't true of the Apostle Paul because he was such a a busy evangelist and apostle, it is a a never-ceasing sort of prayer, an ongoing conversation with God, a, a, a life in communion with God, understanding that God is always speaking through his creation, is always speaking through his word, is always moving in you by the Holy Spirit, and that you are called to always be speaking with him through prayer, a prayer that is without ceasing. 
a prayer that is full of thanksgiving, a prayer that is made with joy, the way we see in these verses. The frequency of prayer, uh, uninterrupted prayer that goes on and on and on with the Lord your God. That's the sort of prayer I think Paul has in mind here. And, and you can see, even from these verses, how you can pray massive prayers so quickly. Thank God for everybody in Philippi. Thank God for your church, O Lord. Thank God for the great saints of church history. Thank you for your word that was inspired by men who have written it so long ago. Thank, thank you that there is gospel, Lord Jesus. Thank you for making a, me a part of your church. Prayers made ceaselessly with joy and thanksgiving. And with a certain focus is what you see in these verses. Paul has made his prayers about others. And Paul will pray and ask for prayer for him as well. You see that often at the end of his epistles, notably in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul this bold apostle prays that they would, uh, asks them, the Ephesians, to pray that he would be bold. But look what he's doing in these verses. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Praying for others, prayer of petition for others is the focus of these frequent prayers of Paul. And I commend that to you. I love that in this church there's all different prayer lists going around. There's a prayer list for the Wednesday evening Bible study. There's a prayer list that gets updated every Saturday morning for the men's meeting. Many of the, if not all, of the different groups, youth groups and women's groups have various prayers prayer lists that are in their minds. Various shepherding groups have prayer lists. And you might be, you yourself, might be one entry or a few lines in that prayer list, but by and large, what you have is something so similar to what's here with the Apostle Paul. Prayers for other people, opportunities to come before the Lord, come before the throne of grace, lifting up brothers and sisters in prayer with frequency giving thanks to God as you pray for others. It results in joy, even joy in prison to one who will soon be martyred. But participation is what we see in verse 5. And in verse 5 is, is just another way in which Paul cultivates this joy He says, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. So he's giving thanks to the Lord for this Philippian church. It gives him joy to remember them all in these frequent prayers of his. And in so doing, he's reflecting on something glorious that these Philippians are participating in the gospel and have from the first day until now. And there's sort of a, a cue to go back in your Bibles to the book of Acts, namely Acts chapter 16, 
the Philippian jailer, the conversion of Lydia, and to stop and realize that Paul was the missionary who went to Philippi and began the Christian church, and he's sort of reflecting on those events that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. And he's doing more than that. He's doing something wonderfully humble and encouraging. He's writing to this church in Philippi, and even though he's an inspired author of Holy Scripture, even though he writes one-third of the New Testament, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ who has had visions of heaven itself and saw Jesus at the right hand of God the Father, or at least heard him as he was converted, he sees himself in participation with this church in Philippi. He sees himself as a sinner alongside other sinners who have received grace through the Lord Jesus Christ, who are partakers of the good news, the gospel, what he mentions in chapter, uh, in verse 5. He includes them in all that he is about. And I encourage you to do this, to come to verse 5, and again, don't just think, oh, that was Paul long ago, he was amazing, and, you know, that first church of Philippi, don't leave it out there 2,000 years ago in your Bible. Participation. Look at that word and see that it picks you up. It includes you. Isn't that glorious? Ever since Paul wrote this book to the Philippian church, it's been read by the church over the ages, over the centuries, over the millenniums. And is glorious because now, 2,000 years later, you can look and see that we're participating in this very thing that Paul was in all the way back then. Think of it as a, a panoramic picture of participation in the gospel. Maybe you've taken one of those panoramic pictures with your phone where you kind of slide it across everything you see, but then stop taking the picture before you get to yourself. Well, keep sliding across panoramically until it includes you and see yourself in participation with what Paul was preaching and teaching and the church of Philippi was practicing. And it's breathtaking. It's glorious. You know, stop and think of all the corporate names that you're aware of. Coca-Cola and Microsoft or, or the sports teams that you know about. The Browns or the Guardians or the Cincinnati Reds. Think about all the institutions that you know about. OSU and just various names on various organizations, even restaurants and whatnot. And this participation in the good news of Jesus Christ goes way back before all of that and extends into eternity after all of those things have faded away. And Paul's saying, you're in this with me. This is what we're about together. Bringing the good news, demonstrating it at work in our lives, announcing it to others, proclaiming the excellencies of him who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light, enlisting citizens for heaven and seeing our own families as those that we will go on in relationship with 
forever and ever, worshiping God, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And go from that that panoramic picture that includes all of church history and even the Apostle Paul and the great saints of the Bible. And think about yourself, not just a, a panoramic picture that includes you, but a personal appraisal of your participation. Because Paul, Paul doesn't say, I participate in the gospel. He says that he's rejoicing in this participation that he has with them. And he's already said all of them. And he reiterates that at the end of verse 4, with you all. And one of Paul's great focuses, a point he belabors, is that we are part of one body, that your unique skill set is intentional, put there by God, that you are uniquely gifted and equipped, that you have your place of unique service. And as he reminds us in 1 Corinthians 12, we never look at our body and say, yeah, you know, I don't really need this finger. I could do without it. I've got two arms. I could do without one. We never think like that. And Paul says, look at the church that way. Look at your participation in the gospel that way. Appraise yourself personally that way. See yourself as part of this partnership in sharing the good news. See that you yourself participate. Prayer and participation fueling this joy that Paul has even from prison. And it's here I want you to stop, and it's why I I think that verse 6 sort of needs to be in in this sermon. Because if you, I I encourage you to turn to prayer and participation and let those things fuel you with joy the way they did with Paul. But don't stop there. I, I know from experience as a Christian, and I know that many of you as Christians know from experience, that if you look exclusively at your prayers and your participation in the gospel, you will become disillusioned. You will become disappointed. You will even be disappointed in yourself. You will end up saying, my prayers are never what they should be. I don't pray enough. My prayer life isn't the way it ought to be. If you look at your participation in the gospel again, you'll be riddled with doubt eventually. Do I witness enough? Do I speak about Jesus enough? Do I speak to my neighbors enough? Do I pray for my neighbors enough? Do I speak about Christ on the job the way I ought to? Am I a testimony to Jesus Christ? Because you are behind your prayers and your participation, you will find fault with them. Which is why I think it's so critical to come to verse 6, where Paul speaks explicitly about his reason for confidence that is resulting in this tremendous joy through prayer and participation in the gospel. I am confident, verse 6, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
I think that's the great motivation behind the Apostle Paul when you hear about all the amazing things he did, all the trials, all the difficulties, the afflictions, the dangers, the persecution, the stoning, everything that he endured. I think it's behind all of it, this reality that he had this confidence that God began a good work and would perfect it until the great day of the Lord. Look at how he doesn't say the day of the Lord or judgment day, but instead the day of Christ Jesus. I do think it's referring to the same day, the great and awful day of the Lord, which will be a judgment day. But I think for the Apostle Paul here in verse 6 and then in verse 11, I think he's so struck with the fact that because of the good news that he participates in, That judgment day for believers in Christ has already come and gone. That's the whole meaning of Calvary and Golgotha. Good Friday, the day Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished, was the day the judgment was finished for all those who had believed or would eventually believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is looking to Calvary, to Golgotha, to the cross in which he alone boasts. And he says, it gives me a confidence. Here I am in prison. All the world would think I'm forever stifled, only to be put out forever through my own martyrdom and death. But that's no way reflects where I'm at in my mind. I'm confident. I have a confidence at work in me that brings me to joy. I know that he who began a good work in this church of Philippi will perfect it until the day of the Lord. That this progress of being made holy will continue day by day, the Lord at work and his people perfecting them through all the different events of their lives. He will do it day by day until one day it is perfect and complete. And the saints are completely holy and united with Jesus Christ face to face. You see, this promise is so essential because it isn't flawed the way your prayers are. It isn't flawed the way your participation is. Instead, he goes back to God and looks to him as this God, he who began this good work, promises perseverance. Promises perseverance until perfection. I want that to change everything about the way you think about everything. That's what I want for my life. That's what I want for your life. Maybe you can call it the direction of the gospel how this occurs in the scripture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the New Testament, how it is so profoundly opened up for you by the Apostle Paul, especially, even in these verses. This direction of the gospel, he's mindful of it over and over and over. It's there throughout the Bible. But with the Apostle Paul, he makes it so clear and explicit and literally 
puts it right up front in his letters to the church, in his letter to this church. This direction of the gospel is what we love so much about the book of Romans. Which corresponds with what is in these verses. Or in in verse 6 of chapter 1 of Philippians. In in Romans 5, there's these terrific verses in verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see what Paul is saying there? It's so similar to what he's saying in Philippians 1.6. He's saying, he began this good work in you. That's not nothing. That took God coming to earth, living a perfect life, going to the cross, being put to death for the sins of men, though he as a man never committed a single sin, dying though he was God, and rising again from the dead. That's what it took to save you from your sin, to take you out of being an enemy with God, to make you a sinner into a saint. That's what it took. If that's what it took to begin a good work in you, why would you ever doubt that it'll bring it to completion? He's at work in you. That's the great length to which he went to begin this work in you. So I can be confident that he will bring it to perfection. He says something so very similar at the end of Romans 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's writing to Philippi. He's got issues to address. There's issues in that church even as there's issues in this church. Each of us is willing to admit on some level that we are far from perfect and very flawed. And what we have as a church is a multiplication of those issues. But before getting to that, Paul cultivates joy by building this confidence based on what Christ has done and has begun to do. And that's why I say I want Philippians 1.6, I want that verse to change everything for everyone. Because it's not just about you, it's certainly for you. It's so encouraging, it's thrilling. Even against the backdrop of flawed prayers and flawed participation in the gospel, it is exhilarating to see that he who began a good work in you is now perfecting it day by day and will one day bring it to absolute perfection on the day of Christ Jesus. But when you consider that, the placement of this grace, the placement of this assurance of pardon, occurring before it gets into what you ought to do and what you ought not to do, when you consider this direction of the gospel, 
When you think of it in terms of yourself and are encouraged and exhilarated and brought to joy over it, look also at the church. Think about the church as it is. Church history is fascinating to study. It is encouraging at so many points. It's wonderful to realize that the Lord preserves his church in every age and brings about reformation and revival throughout church and raises up great leaders and works among people. It's also distressing to read church history. Over and over you come to stories about people professing to be Christians and are sort of asking, how could that be? They got it so wrong. And the sad thing is when you turn to church history to even this church that you're a part of, you see flaws. You see things that shouldn't be. So easy to become distressed and upset by church. But I want to call you to remember in light of Philippians 1.6 is that when you see those distressing things about the church, you're seeing the church as it is now. Paul had this confidence in what the church would become and what the church would eventually be. You know, that's revolutionary. Because in a sense, it brings you to a profound gratefulness for where the church is now. You see, God is at work. He's not beside himself in heaven, wringing his hands over the church. He's not lamenting how none of us have progressed enough in holiness and sanctification. He's not at his wit's end over our behavior. He's using your life, even the sins within your life, to day by day perfect you, bring you progress and sanctification on a trajectory that one day ends on the day of the Lord Jesus Christ when you are absolutely perfect in him, and that's not just true of you. It's true for his entire church. So through prayer, participation, and promise, even in the worst of circumstances, which Paul knew very much of, we are able to consciously, deliberately, intentionally cultivate joy through confidence in our God. Let's pray together. Father,